Well, good evening, everyone. This is the fourth lesson of Jude that uh, Robbie has prepared for us for tonight. Uh, so uh, we'll just go ahead and get started on that. Uh, I have heard a little news from Robbie. Uh, he complained about some having a cold or some kind of illness. I think he always gets it. It's the uh, Kiev whatever. I don't know what it is. But anyway, we're hoping that uh, and praying that he will return safely and in good health. So uh, we'll turn over for the uh, fourth lesson of Jude. Thank you. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, let's make sure that we are in fellowship which means that we are in right relationship with God, that uh, we are walking by means of God the Holy Spirit. And whenever we sin, that uh, walk by the Spirit ceases. His sanctifying ministry stops until we recover through confession of sin. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to make sure you're in fellowship. And then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for your word, that it is in your word that we learn truth. It is in the light of your truth that we learn to make right decisions from a position of strength and that we learn to uh, relate to the world around us through the framework of divine viewpoint, that it is through your word that we are enabled to properly understand and interpret the issues of life so that we can then make wise decisions. Now, Father, as we study your word this in this class, we pray that you would help us to understand these things and to uh, recognize what it means to grow spiritually, how to grow spiritually, and the importance of growing spiritually. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Sanctification is one of those words that even many Christians have have a little trouble with over time. We wonder, we have to stop and think about it because it's based on an antiquated English word, but it is still a good theological word. It is a word that means to be set apart to the service of God. And in that sense, it is similar to the English word consecrated, to be set apart for a specific purpose. And in Jude's opening Uh, opening verse, he uses this word referring to believers who are called, and that idea of calling has to do with the fact that God has a purpose for us, and that calling is then um, further defined, I believe, by these two phrases, sanctified by God the Father and preserved or kept by Jesus Christ. So we're beginning, as we did at the end of the last class, to look at this concept of sanctification. I pointed out the last class that there is a textual problem here in the second part of verse 1. 
Now, textual problem simply means that there are uh, some manuscripts in the Greek, Greek New Testament, some manuscripts that have one word sanctified, others have another word that is similar, uh, beloved. Beloved comes from the word agape, and sanctified comes from the word hagiadzo. So you see they both begin with an A and a G, and in a perfect tense form there's a there's a similarity in the ending as well, and so it would be easy for a copyist to simply make an error of transmission and substitute one word for the other. Doctrinally, although the content of the idea of sanctification versus beloved are are distinct, they are both both concepts are taught in the New Testament. So it doesn't make any difference. It doesn't affect any doctrine to uh, have one word versus the other word. Both of them are used. That's why in reading about this textual problem, I believe that there aren't any real um, uh, knockdown arguments for one over the other, other than the fact that if one holds to the critical or eclectic view of textual criticism, which I don't, then one has a tendency to go with the, uh, cr- uh, the older manuscripts, and I believe that the majority text is probably more accurate. Uh, it's slightly different from the Textus Receptus, which is what uh, the text from which the King James and New King James are translated. And the um, majority text has at least 1,800 differences between the majority text and the critical text. But here I believe the word is sanctified, and that's the word that you find in, if you're reading in a King James Version or the New King James Version. The Greek word is hagiadzo. Uh, you have a number of different forms of this word. You have the nouns hagias, hagiasmas. You have the uh, old in the Old Testament. You have forms of the uh, verb kadosh. You have kadosh for a noun, and you have various other forms of that. Those two roots and both word groups emphasize being set apart to the service. Of God, most people, when they think of these words, and uh, uh, especially in light of one particular English word they're used uh, to translate into the word holy, they think that it has the idea of being morally pure. Except we have forms of the uh, the Hebrew word used to apply to the male and female cultic prostitutes in the worship of Baal and the Asherah. And there's nothing morally pure about that. It has to do with the fact that they are set apart for the service of their God. So the essence, the essential meaning of the word sanctify or holy is to be set apart for the service of God. And there are three ways in which we are set apart for the service of God. We think of these in a temporal sense but they have to do with different stages or phases of our Christian life. You can also think of experiential, which is phase two sanctification. You can also think of experiential sanctification just simply as the spiritual life, how we grow as Christians. So we're going to look at that in terms of our our study uh, in this particular lesson. And so the, uh, just as a chart to help you understand this, there are three phases or stages to salvation. Phase one is justification. Whenever a person believes at that instant of belief in Jesus Christ as Savior, at that instant, uh, a number of things happen 
non-experientially. We don't know about them until afterward. But at that instant, God the Father imputes or credits to our account perfect righteousness, the perfect righteousness of Christ. At the Simultaneously, as God sees that we have that perfect righteousness, not ours, it doesn't change us, but as he sees that perfect righteousness, he declares that we are judicially righteous. Because we are declared judicially righteous, because we are justified, we are considered to be positionally sanctified because at that same instant as we are identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, which is known as the baptism by the Holy Spirit, at that instant of identification with Christ, we are said to be in Christ. That is our new position. Sometimes uh, I refer to this as positional truth. This is the reality of our new identity in Christ. I pointed out last time as we went through Romans chapter 6, that this means that we are now slaves of Christ positionally as opposed to slaves to the sin nature. That power of the sin nature is broken at this time, and we are no longer slaves of the sin nature. We are freed from the penalty of sin, but that power of the sin nature is also broken. Because of that, we can grow spiritually. It is a progress uh, it is not something that happens instantaneously. We don't jump to some higher level of spirituality. Uh, this was a misconception that was uh, very popular in the late 19th century and early 20th century, known as the higher life teaching. Uh, sometimes there were titles of book called The Secret Life, The Secrets to the Higher Life of the Christian, uh, The Higher Life uh, of the Christian uh certain uh, books by that name uh, it related to Keswick theology. It related also to what is called holiness theology, which is the background for um, much of uh, charismatic uh, theology and Pentecostal theology. But it simply means that we are freed from the power of sin and the authority and dominion of the sin nature, and therefore we can grow and advance spiritually as we walk by means of the Holy Spirit in obedience to the Word of God and walking by the Spirit of God, then we are we grow and mature so that we can serve God more effectively. We are experientially set apart to His service. And so as we walk by the Spirit according to the Word of God, then we are experientially sanctified and experiential righteousness is produced in us. And then at the time of death, we are uh, we have final or ultimate sanctification. We're absent from the body, face-to-face -face with the Lord. We're freed from the presence of the sin nature in our, uh, uh, either in, in our state uh, prior to resurrection body, in the intermediate state when we're face-to-face -face with the Lord glorified or when we receive our resurrection body at the time of the rapture, then at that point we, will, uh, we, we are without a sin nature. So once we're, when we die, we no longer have the presence of the sin nature and we are um, uh, sanctified without the sin, no more sin nature. Now just some verses that emphasize each of these phases. At phase one, we have uh, 1 Corinthians 1, 2. 
1 Corinthians 1, 2, a passage that some say is, is uh, influenced the, a, a copyist of Jude 1, and which is why he uses the word sanctified here. That's hard to prove or demonstrate. But in 1 Corinthians 1, 2, as the Apostle Paul addressed the church of Corinth, he said to the church of Corinth, I mean to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified. And here he uses a, 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 a participle indicating, it's a perfect participle indicating that they have uh, been sanctified uh, in the past. It is completed, it is done with, and so that indicates positional sanctification to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus. That is our position in him. Called saints. Called saints. That is our calling. That is the purpose for which God has brought us into union with Christ. Now, now there's a relationship between those two words, sanctified uh, being a participle and saints being a noun indicating sanctified ones. So every believer is a saint because they have been positionally sanctified, and so they are sanctified ones. So 1 Corinthians 1-2 talks of phase one sanctification. Another verse is in 1 Corinthians 1-30, but of him you are in Christ Jesus who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So at the instant that we are saved, we receive the imputation of Christ's righteousness. That means we are set apart then to the service of God because we are judicially righteous and we are redeemed. We receive the application of redemption in our life. Second Thessalonians uh, chapter 2, verse 13, also emphasizes positional sanctification. Uh, there the Apostle Paul says, But we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning, that is before time began actually, from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification. That is how God Choose it. This is not talking about election, God, some God in eternity past deciding, you know, I'll save you, I'll save you, I'll save you, but I'm not going to save you. That's not the idea here. It is that I will save you through positional sanctification. It is a choice of a method here, not of an individual, of individuals. Those who are, who believe in Christ, Trust in him, become the those who are chosen by God because that is the method he chose for salvation. We're chosen for salvation through or by means of sanctification. And then it's translated that King James is, or New King James is by, but it's really a genitive here indicating of or from the Spirit, indicating that sanctification is in the purview, the primary responsibility of God the Holy Spirit. Another verse for phase one sanctification is 1 Peter 1, 2. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God. That has to do with the knowledge of God beforehand, that God uh, in his omniscience knows all of the knowable. God in his omniscience knows everything that could happen or would happen or might have happened as well as what will happen. And on the basis of his omniscience, 
He knows uh, who will be who will respond to the gospel and who will not. Those who believe in the gospel are are the elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in or by means of sanctification. See, election, you know, when, when people, people start talking about election, they just have this sort of spiritual spasm in the brain. And the idea is that God chooses the means as well as the ends. And the means are by means of sanctification, positional sanctification, once again from, uh, by the Spirit. And that emphasizes the role of God the Holy Spirit in our positional uh, sanctification as well as experiential sanctification. Another verse on phase one sanctification is Hebrews 10.10, by that will, uh, because we have been sanctified. It's a, again, it's a participial use here, a causal sense. By that will, because we have been sanctified, it's a perfect passive participle. Perfect tense emphasizes completed action, the present results of already completed past action. So again, this is talking of phase one, sanctification, which occurs positionally at the instant of faith alone in Christ alone. We have been sanctified uh, through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. It is because we are cleansed of sin. We have the imputation of Christ, Christ's righteousness. We are forgiven that we are set apart to his service. Only on that basis can we be set apart to his service. So that's phase one, known as positional sanctification, happens in an instant in time. Don't confuse or correlate phase one with phase two. This is the problem that you have historically in Roman Catholic theology. Roman Catholic theology says there's just that justification, sanctification are just experiential so that they happen over time and you never know when you really have enough to be sanctified. Uh, you get a little grace each time you participate in uh, one of the sa- sacraments. And so you don't, it's not an instant in time. You're not declared justified or positionally sanctified. You, you just have this progress. And this is also a problem, by the way, um, in a little bit different sense with lordship salvation because you don't really know if you're 100% saved. It, it, you can't say, well, I trusted Christ here, so therefore I know I'm saved. The only way you know you're saved in lordship salvation is if you can point back in your life to fruit and you've seen a progress of sanctification. If you don't see that progress of sanctification, then you didn't have the right kind of faith. Uh, John MacArthur, pastor of Grace Community Church in Southern California is one of the most widely known uh, proponents of lordship salvation. He's written a number of books, the first of which that really promoted this was called The Gospel According to Jesus. And I remember back in around 1988 or 89 when that book first came out, there was a large bookstore in Irving, Texas, where I was pastoring a church that would um, would bring authors in to speak to pastors. And that year, the Christian uh, uh, Booksellers Convention the, uh, was held in Dallas, 
And so uh, that year that book first came out, the bookstore hosted John MacArthur. He came, explained his position. Uh, Tommy Ice and I were sitting on the front row right in front of him, and when he finished, uh, I asked him the question. I said, well, based on what you said and the role of works as, as validation of genuine faith, uh, how sure are you that you are saved? And he said, well, I'm about 99% sure I'm saved that nobody can be any more sure than that. Well, that's not really assurance of salvation, but he's honest. I've asked him that question, and others have asked him that question since then. He still says the same thing. So, But Scripture teaches you can be 100% sure if you trust in Christ as your, as your Savior. It's not progressive. Positional is instantaneous. Then we come to phase two. Phase two we call progressive sanctification, I have a little bit of a problem with that term only because within a lordship context, they believe that if you're truly genuinely saved, there's an automatic progression. And so I have a problem with using that word. Others can use it. Many people, good people, grace-oriented people use that word progressive. It's fine as long as you understand it's not automatic. It's not necessarily so. Just because you're justified doesn't mean you will automatically progress in your spiritual life, which is a lordship idea. So I like the the word experiential uh, much better. John seventeen seventeen talks about it this way: Jesus in his high priestly prayer to God the Father says, "Sanctify them." By your truth. In other words, the means of sanctification here is the Word of God. He explains it very clearly in the next phrase Your Word is truth. So you cannot grow as a Christian if you do not know the Word of God. If you're not studying the Word of God, if you're not internalizing the Word of God as part of your thinking, you cannot grow exp- experientially in your spiritual life. Uh, singing hymns won't do it. Singing praise songs won't do it. Uh, giving won't do it. All the other things that people try to substitute for the study of God's Word won't do it. God only sets us apart experientially. Growth only occurs by the Word of God. We'll see a couple of other verses like that. Uh, another verse that relates to uh, experiential sanctification is Hebrews uh, chapter 12, verse 14. This is a command to pursue peace with all and holiness. Holiness is sanctification, uh, without which no one will see the Lord. Now, that's not talking about salvation, justification, seeing the Lord in terms of being face-to-face with him at death. This is talking about the ongoing intimacy with with the Lord in heaven that is spoken of as a special reward to those who persevere uh, in their uh, Christian growth uh, in the seven letters to the seven churches at the beginning of, of Revelation. So this has to do with a closer intimacy in the presence of God and access to the presence of God uh, in, the, uh, in the kingdom and in the eternal state. Third verse to look at on experiential sanctification is 2 Corinthians 7, verse 1. 2 Corinthians 7, verse 1 says, Therefore having these promises, or because we have these promises, that is the promises within God's word, 
Paul says, Beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit. Now, what he means by that in the language of the King James and is simply that we are to be cleansed experientially from sin. 1 John 1, 9 states it more clearly. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to what? Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So it's not just the sins that we know, but the sins that we don't know, the sins we've forgotten about, the sins that we were unaware of were sins were cleansed from all unrighteousness. And that is the beginning. We cannot grow spiritually if we're out of fellowship. Now, some people have said in criticizing that view of 1 John 1, 9, say, well, that, well what you're saying is that, that the Holy Spirit isn't doing anything in the Christian life. That's not what I've said. The Holy Spirit has a number of ministries in the believer's life, one of which is convicting us of sin, is bringing sin to our consciousness so that we confess it when we're out of fellowship. He's still involved, but he's involved in getting us back on track, not moving us down the track. So we have to um, recognize that when we sin, it shuts down our forward momentum. It shuts down the growth process, but it doesn't shut down the role of the Holy Spirit. He's just not able to produce growth. He is instead involved in getting us to recover and confess sin and to then, once we're back in fellowship, to go forward. So 2 Corinthians 7, 1 talks about this in terms of cleansing ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness. And that perfecting there isn't the idea of becoming perfect. It's the idea of moving towards an end goal of maturity. or We could translate it maturing sanctification in the fear of God. Another verse, one of my favorite, because it relates to the role of, of the Lord Jesus Christ in his humanity, that he had to grow and mature spiritually is in Hebrews, found in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. Uh, begins, for it was fitting, or it was appropriate for him, that is God the Father, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, that is, in the process of bringing and maturing believers to ultimate glorification, that it was appropriate for him to make the captain of their salvation. That's the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who uh, provided salvation for us by his death on the cross, uh, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. Jesus Christ did not have to be sanctified by the removal of sin in his life because he was perfect. He was without sin. Nevertheless, he still had to grow to spiritual maturity, trusting in God. And so he was attested through various uh, areas of suffering uh, in that process, because in suffering and testing, that gives us the opportunity to trust in God and we grow and mature uh, spiritually. And then the 11th verse says, both he, for both he who sanctifies, that is God the Father, and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason he, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, is not ashamed to call them 
brethren. In other words, uh, we go through the same process that he went through. He pioneered that through his dependency upon God the Holy Spirit. And then as a um, another verse, our final verse on experiential sanctification, the first verse we looked at, John seventeen seventeen, said that uh, in Jesus' high priestly prayer, he prayed, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. In Second Peter 3.18, we read, but grow in the grace or by means of the grace and by means of the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So spiritual growth cannot take place apart from knowledge. So the two basic elements in spiritual growth are the Word of God and the Spirit of God. We have to be rightly related to God, the Holy Spirit, and then we are, through his leadership guidance, empowering in our life, we are rightly related to the Word of God by learning it and applying it. God, the Holy Spirit, then works in us to produce spiritual growth and spiritual maturity. So we are to grow in by means of the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is experiential sanctification. Now, ultimate sanctification, or phase three, is also seen in uh, several verses. I'll mention uh, uh, several of them here. Uh, First of all, we have uh, Ephesians 5.27, which is a passage specifically talking about marriage and the role of the husband to the wife, but it compares that by analogy to the role of the Lord Jesus Christ to the church, the universal church that is made up of all believers, everyone who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, that he and uh, uh, so he said that he might present her, that is the church, to himself, a glorious church. This is phase three that the church would be glorified, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy. That is completely sanctified, final sanctification, and without blemish. So in ultimate or final sanctification, there is no sin. Then another passage that relates to this as well is Jude 24, the conclusion of this epistle. So Jude begins with a reference to uh, sanctification and his introduction as well as in his conclusion. In his conclusion, he says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. We'll see in just a minute that he begins also with security, that Jesus, we're preserved in Jesus Christ in his introduction, and then in his conclusion, he also references back to eternal security. He's able to keep us from stumbling and to present you faultless. There's sanctification, glorification, without sin, at glorification, the freedom from the presence of the sin nature to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Another verse, Romans 8.29, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. That is, our destiny is to be conformed to the image of his Son, which means sinless, uh, impeccability without sin. First John 3.1 and 2 also speak of this final or ultimate sanctification. There John writes, uh, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called the children of God. Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know him. 
Beloved, now we are children of God. That is now in this present time when we are going through experiential sanctification, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, that is, in the future. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, ultimate glorification, phase three, for we shall see him as he is. We will be in a sinless state, and only then will we be without a sin nature. So this covers the three phases of sanctification. Phase one is positional sanctification, phase two, experiential sanctification, phase three, glorification, ultimate sanctification. Phase one is related to justification. Phase two is related to the spiritual life and spiritual growth. And phase three is related to when we are absent from the body and face-to-face with the Lord. So, Jude begins this epistle by reminding his readers that they are called, that is, God has called them through the proclamation of the gospel, and at their response to that gospel, uh, they have become sanctified. This is positional sanctification. So he's emphasizing their identity in Christ, who they are in Christ, set apart positionally, for the service of God, relating it back to the idea of being a slave that he alludes to in terms of himself in the first verse, they are, we are all, at the instant of faith alone in Christ alone, slaves of Christ positionally. The next thing that he says, having stated that we are sanctified or set apart by God the Father, and many times God the Father is stated because he is the ultimate authority, although in terms of the role of and responsibility in terms of the individual believer, that's uh, attributed to the Holy Spirit. So we are sanctified or set apart by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ. We are preserved in Jesus Christ or kept in Jesus Christ. This is an extremely important word in the Greek. It is the word tereo, which means to keep, to preserve. Sometimes it's the word that is frequently used for obey. Uh, So it is a perfect passive participle here, just as beloved was a perfect passive participle indicating completed action. It's not ongoing action. It's completed. The results go on forever. It is completed. We're preserved. We're kept. It's final. This is a great verse for understanding uh, eternal security. Eternal security is a doctrine that is uh, not believed by a number of different people within the history of Christianity. And it shows that they have an extremely anemic impoverished view of salvation. Uh, when I go over to Ukraine and am in, um, in, in areas uh, dominated by Eastern Orthodoxy, Eastern or- the Eastern Orthodox Church, the Greek Orthodox Church, Syrian Orthodox Church, Russian Orthodox Church, Ukrainian Orthodox Church, Orthodoxy does not believe in eternal security. That means they have a, whenever somebody doesn't believe in eternal security, you know that they have a very... Uh, low view of God's God's power, and they have a too high of a view of sin because they think that sin somehow can overcome the power of God. So they have a, a less powerful God, a less powerful salvation, and they give more power and credit to human volition and to human uh, to human sin. 
It's interesting that Jude, uh, just as I pointed out with sanctification, Jude frames or brackets this epistle with an introduction and a conclusion that focuses on security. He uses two different words, two synonyms, tereo and philoso. Philoso is also frequently used in passages as a uh, as a synonym, perfect, um, uh, a very close synonym for tereo. And in the conclusion, Jude says, now to him who is able to keep you, and it's an aorist, active, infinitive, emphasizing results, an infinitive uh, that expresses a result. He is able to keep us, to preserve us, to protect us from stumbling. That means to for losing salvation. We cannot lose salvation. He will present us faultless before the throne because in this life we never get away from the sin nature. And so what I want to do uh, here as we uh, get into this epistle is a review of the of the doctrine of eternal uh, security, the doctrine of eternal security. I'll probably take this lesson and the next lesson to get completely through this because I want to make sure that this is clear, that we all understand why the Bible teaches that once we're saved, in the popular cliche, uh, once saved, always saved. And you have to understand what saved means And the more we understand what happens at salvation, the more we realize how that cannot be undone. It is so complex and so uh, profound that we just cannot imagine that that it can be reversed in any way, shape, or form. That's why I say that, that if you don't believe in eternal security, you have a low view of what God does at salvation, a low view of God's power, and a high view... Of, of man's power, which is completely contrary to Christianity. And um, so just by way of introduction, we have to understand that there are a lot of different Christians who reject the idea of eternal security. There's no eternal security for a Roman Catholic because they don't even know if they've ever gotten enough grace to be saved. So in Roman Catholic theology, I'm not saying that if you're Roman Catholic, you're not eternally secure. There are some, there are some Roman Catholics or probably some Mormons or probably a few others who just by the grace of God heard the truth somehow believe in Jesus. They didn't get the, all the garbage that comes with the theology of those uh, uh, fraudulent systems. They just heard Jesus says, and they said, I believe that, and I believe that that is good enough and close enough to understand the gospel. I think that's all some young children understand is that they're, they're in serious trouble and uh, there is a serious penalty and Jesus delivers them and they trust in him and it's as simple as that. But there are many Christians who reject the idea that once you're saved, you're always saved. And as I pointed out, um, <clears throat> these denominations, these pastors, these theological systems consistently have a low view of God and a high view of man. Uh, for example, in Arminian theology, and all of these would be classified as Arminian theology or Pelagian theology, Pelagianism, that term that refers to a British um, teacher by the name of Pelagius in the uh, uh, 4th century who was an opponent of, uh, of Augustine and uh, uh, 
Arminius taught that uh, every human being is, is, is born just like Adam was created, just pure, sinless, and it's up to their volition whether they're saved or not, and they can choose. Even after they choose to believe in Christ, they can choose to disbelieve, and then they lose their salvation. Uh, the later Reformation counterpart was James Arminius in the late 1500s, and so the Arminian position is usually found in a number of, uh, uh, you have it in free will Baptist churches, I believe. Not most Baptist churches believe in eternal security, but free will Baptists do not. Uh, you find it in a number of Pentecostal charismatic uh, denominations, although not all for sure, so that's kind of mixed. Uh, you do find it, as I stated earlier, in, uh, in Orthodoxy uh, as well as in Roman Catholic Church. Um, but there's a lot of similarity between the Arminian view and the Lordship view. The Arminian view says that you can do something to lose your salvation. Now, remember this. If anybody says there's something you can do to lose salvation, then somewhere in their theological system, works gets them saved. They may not have it very uh, overt, stated in an extreme way, but if you can do something to lose it, then you're doing something to get it or to keep it, and that is always works. To the degree that we can do something to lose our salvation, to that same degree our works are part of our uh, salvation. Now, on, in lordship, the problem that they have is that if they look at a person and it doesn't seem to them that they're living like a Christian should, and trust me, we've all made this kind of mistake. We'll see somebody and say, you know, they just don't live like a Christian. I'm not sure they're saved. Well, that's, you've really just subtly bought into lordship, salvation at that point, because you're trying to determine a person's spiritual status on the basis of what you perceive their outer works to be. And we can't see the heart, we can't see what they've trusted in, and many, many, many Christians who have trusted in Christ as Savior have done many evil, sinful, horrible uh, things, but they are still um, saved, they are still justified. But Lordship says that if you don't have the right kind of fruit, if over here when you were 3, 6, 8, 10, 15, 19, 20, whenever, and you said you trusted Christ as your Savior, but there's no fruit in their terms. You know, there's no evidence of you going to church or uh, reading your Bible or praying or growing as a Christian, then you weren't ever saved. They, they connect justification with experiential sanctification so that you know you're justified by your experiential sanctification. And that is a form of the Roman Catholic heresy. And that is a basic problem with lordship. It's the problem with John Piper up in Minnesota. It's the problem with John MacArthur is that it is a hidden works gospel. They sneak works in the back door rather than the front door. The Arminians say you're, you're saved by your works. Uh, the lordship crowd says that if you have the right kind of faith, then you'll have the right kind of works. You don't have the right kind of works, then you didn't have the right kind of faith. They're both saying the same thing. Ultimately, uh, they just use a, a, a little more a sophistry in the lordship camp to avoid uh, being uh, uh, overt. Both have problems 
with believing that a person who simply trusts Christ as Savior is eternally secure apart from any other uh, obedience or works in their life. So let's start with a definition. A definition. Uh, The definition is that eternal security is the work of God. God is the one who secures us and keeps us and preserves us, not us. The work of God toward the believer at the instant of faith alone in Christ alone. This is another of the many things that God does for us that we don't experience at the instant of salvation. At the instant of faith alone in Christ alone, which guarantees that God's free gift of salvation is eternal and cannot be lost, terminated, abrogated, nullified, or reversed by any thought, act, or change of belief in the person saved. In other words, our salvation isn't dependent at any point on what we think, what we say, or what we do. It is based completely, exclusively on Jesus Christ. There's no merit in belief. The only merit is in the object of belief, and it's in Christ alone. Only trusting in Christ, not Christ plus works, not Christ plus any kind of sacrament, Christ alone, and we're trusting. It's faith alone. Simply put, it's that God saves us and keeps us. The only thing that that comes from us is that we believe and trust in God to save us. Now, here's the problem. Problem is expressed one of two ways, as I stated in the introduction. It's either the problem of eternal security versus perseverance. In the lordship problem, which is a manifestation of certain forms of Calvinism, Calvinism is expressed usually by an acronym of TULIP, T-U-L-I-P, TULIP, T for total inability, U for unconditional election, L for limited atonement, I for irresistible grace, but here we're dealing with the P for perseverance. And in some forms of Calvinism, the perseverance is expressed in terms of the individual perseveres in obedience to Christ, and this is why he, why he knows he is saved. I'll show you some quotes in just a minute. Others will say, no, it's not the individual that perseveres. It is Christ who perseveres in keeping us. This was uh, Lewis Berry Chafer's definition of perseverance. That is biblically accurate. That is what is known by eternal security. But eternal security does not necessarily equal perseverance in the Calvinistic sense. Now, on the, the other side of the story, the Arminian or Pelagian problem is that there is no real eternal security. That means there's no real salvation. You can't ever be sure of your salvation. It is really just a, a superficial salvation. That's their, ultimately the concept uh, that they have. Now, let me show you some, some quotes just to give you an idea of how this is expressed in, in different theologies. First of all, the Westminster Confession of Faith was written in the mid-17th century in the 1600s by the uh, uh, Calvinists within the Anglican Church. And in their, that Westminster Confession of Faith, this is a standard doctrinal statement you'll find in most, uh, at least conservative Presbyterian churches. 
the Westminster Confession of Faith states, They whom God hath accepted in his beloved, that is a reference to Jesus Christ, effectually called and sanctified by his Spirit, can neither totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace. That's a key statement. Can they fall away? Can you totally fall away from grace? In other words, as someone who once trusted in Christ as your Savior, can you say, I'm not, I don't believe in Jesus anymore. He's not God. He didn't rise from the dead. Uh, I reject everything about Christianity. It just isn't true. Uh, it, that is what they mean by totally uh, falling away. Now, they, they do make a little room for the fact that you can have doubts, you can have an extended period of 10, 20, or 30 years of carnality, but you'll always come back to Jesus, come back to Christianity. If you were truly saved, you'll come back before the end, end, end of your life. Now, what's interesting about this is that there, there's sort of that, that, that safety net that's there that, that uh, they'll come back by the end of their life, John MacArthur tells a story, and this is one of the things that, uh, circumstances that uh, influenced him in the direction of lordship salvation. And I have a similar story in my own life, uh, that he had a very close friend. They grew up together. They were in church together. It was his father's church. His father uh, was a pastor of a, a, a large church in Southern California as well. And um, and this has... Um, uh, this this friend was involved in him in, in, in uh, high school, doing going down to beach evangelism, where they would walk up and down uh, the beaches in Southern California, and they would hand out tracks, Campus Crusade tracks of four spiritual laws, things like that, and leading people to Christ. They were in Bible studies together, all of these activities together. And then when they went off to college, uh, John MacArthur went off to uh, Bob Jones. Uh, university where he did his undergraduate work. In fact, uh, there's a friend of mine who's a friend of many people in this church, uh, no, Jerry Davis. Jerry Davis was actually John MacArthur's roommate at Bob Jones back when he says uh, that Johnny MacArthur, as he calls him, uh, Jerry would go home on uh, holiday sometimes, so in California uh, with, with MacArthur, and he said he understood grace completely at that time. And he completely understood uh, and didn't have any problems with uh, with eternal security was not lordship. But at that, this friend of MacArthur's that he had known, grown up with, his best friend, went off to, uh, I think it was UCLA, I may be wrong there, but it was one of the liberal California schools, and became an apostate, an atheist. He completely rejected everything about Christianity, and so John MacArthur is trying to put this together. How could he have been this way when he was young, and later he becomes an atheist, an apostate? The only explanation, he must not have really been saved. And unfortunately, there are too many people who come to that conclusion. Well, it, it, they really weren't saved. Now, I have a similar situation in my life, a friend, a close friend when we were young, uh, grew up at Camp Pinal together. He was from a Baptist background. I was from a Bible church background. Uh, therefore, he did not have the doctrinal grounding he should have had, but he was a good communicator. He was very, very popular. He was nice looking. He was a high star high school quarterback. He was quarterback till he got injured, freshman team at Rice, uh, Bright, all of that, went off to uh, Southwestern Seminary. Um, had a, a couple of things happen to him personally, became very 
uh, discouraged about God, very cynical, atheist. Last I heard of him, he was teaching New Age mystical seminars as a psychotherapist, completely rejecting Christianity, and he's the prodigal within his family. I still know his, his siblings and run into them, and this has been going on for 20 or 30 years. But I know he's saved because he had a very clear understanding of the truth of the gospel. Same with John MacArthur's friend. He believed Jesus died on the cross for his sins. That means he's saved. It doesn't mean he he is God is going to keep him from becoming an apostate. And that is what happens. But see, the Westminster Confession of Faith says that you 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 can, may be disobedient for a time, but you won't. You, you'll always come back. I think it kind of it's kind of ironic that that MacArthur's already made a decision that this friend of his is never going to come back. See, the theology actually is that they won't finally depart. Well, this guy's still alive, as MacArthur's still alive, so how does he know? So that, that's what happens is the basic problem, as one of my seminary professors said, said one time, and now he's really into lordship, unfortunately, is that the problem with lordship is they try to quantify fruit. You can't quantify it. Uh, You've got to stick with the gospel. So Westminster Confession goes on to say that but they shall certainly persevere therein to the end and be eternally saved. Now here's another view stated by Louis Burkhoff. Burkhoff was a very well-known Presbyterian theologian. Uh, His systematic theology was a textbook that we had at Dallas Seminary, very good in some areas, but obviously he's a covenant theologian as well as uh, lordship. And uh, Burkhoff defined perseverance this way. The doctrine of perseverance requires careful statement, especially in view of the fact that the term perseverance of the saints is liable to misunderstanding. We should guard against the possible misunderstanding that this perseverance is regarded as an inherent property of the believer or as a continuous activity of man by means of which he perseveres in the way of salvation. See, the way he states it there is he's trying to get away from saying that this is something that the individual does. So he's on the more correct side of the Calvinist equation. Uh, Charles Hodge, mid-19th century theologian at uh, Princeton, Here's his picture. He was born in 1797, died in 1878, which means he lived to almost be 100. The Hodges, three generations of, of theology professors at Princeton, kept Princeton as the uh, forefront of biblical orthodoxy in the 19th century. There was Charles, his son Augustus Alexander, or A.A. A. Hodge, and then his grandson Casper into the 20th century stated that the devoted apostle considered himself as engaged in a life struggle of his salvation. See, that's the bad side. That's the lordship end of Calvinistic uh, lordship salvation, that that Paul was never sure. He's in a life struggle to maintain salvation. And his systematic, that was uh, Charles Hodge commentary comment on 1 Corinthians 9.27. And his systematic theology defines perseverance as perseverance in holiness, therefore, in opposition to all weakness and temptations is the only sure evidence of the genuineness of past experience. So it's based on experience of the validity of our confidence as to our future salvation. So 
assurance of salvation is based on your works, that you can see that you have persevered. He's on the negative side of uh, perseverance. Now, that's all within Calvinism. Now, here's the Arminian side. Robert Shank says there's no saving faith apart from obedience. See, faith equals obedience. That's the Arminian view. There's no valid assurance of election and final salvation for any man apart from deliberate perseverance in faith. Now, he's Arminian. Now, how does what he says there differ from the Calvinist? And that's why sometimes I've said, you know, you, you don't have a, you don't have a horizontal spectrum here with Calvinism on one end and uh, Arminianism on the other. You have more of a circle, a broken circle, and at one end up here you have Arminianism, and at the other side, just right right next to it, is is this kind of high Calvinism because they're just very, very close to what they're saying in terms of man's ability to keep himself saved. The worst statement, an example, is from A.W. Pink, who at one time was a dispensationalist and then went covenant. He stated that God preserves his people in this world through their perseverance. So this is this is a dominant view out there. People just can't let God be God and grace be grace and that God does all the work. So this is the problem in uh, with eternal security. Now to understand it, what I want to do as we go through this is see that there is a Trinitarian role to eternal security. There are aspects that belong to God the Father, aspects that belong to God the Son, and aspects that belong to God the Holy Spirit. It is the triune God that keeps us uh, secure in our salvation. He saves us. We do nothing to save ourselves. Now remember, the first point was de- definition. The second point was explaining the problem. Now, the third point and on, we're going to see the biblical teaching. And we'll start with the purpose of God, as stated in Romans eight twenty-nine and 30. Romans eight twenty-nine and 30. God's purpose in salvation is clear. It is to conform us to the image of Christ, and his purpose cannot be overridden. And notice what we see here is the same group that he foreknew, the same group is conformed to the image of his son. The same group is justified. He doesn't lose any. He accomplishes his purpose so that the purpose of God is that all those who are justified are those who are glorified. He doesn't lose any. You can't, in the Arminian view, you can be justified, but you can lose it. This doesn't so much address the Calvinist problem, the Lordship problem, as it does the Arminian problem. The Arminian problem is you can be justified and then lose it. The Arminian view has a very shallow view of sin and a shallow view of justification because they they say that you, they, you can lose it. So the purpose of God is that we are conformed to the image of Christ and that all who are justified will be glorified. Fourth, uh, <clears throat> fourth point is that our security is based upon the power of God. It's based on the power of God. Uh, this is clearly stated in Jude one twenty four. Now to him who is able, God is able to keep us and to preserve us here. Let's just stop a minute. God is omnipotent. That means he is able to do whatever he wishes to accomplish. 
That means that his desire, his purpose is to save those who trust in Christ. So he provides a salvation, a a salvation where Jesus Christ pays the penalty for sin. Now, is there any decision, uh, any sin, any activity, any thought in any of human history that God did not know about in his omniscience billions and billions of years ago? None. God knew every sin, every thought, every action, everything, and he doesn't forget one. They are all, as Paul states in Colossians 2, 12 through 14, they are all nailed to the cross. Every one of them. He doesn't drop one in. Oops, your sin, you committed that one sin that I forgot about. See, God doesn't do that. He is omniscient and he is omnipotent. And in his omnipotence, he is more powerful than any human effort to negate salvation. He is able to devise a plan of salvation that is more powerful and more uh, uh, inclusive than anything that any human being can think of. He included all of the sins. They were all paid for at the cross. The basic problem we have is this view of sin that people have. Um, Sin permeates everything. It permeates every aspect of our being. It permeates every every aspect of our physical existence. There's nothing that we can do to escape sin. There is There are no degrees of sin. There's no little sins. Any sin violates the character of God, and any sin, no matter how small, even just the eating a fruit, eating fruit violates the character of God if it's done in disobedience. That's why the original sin was uh, disobedience in relation to something that most people consider to be rather simple. If you have a high, a low view of sin, that is, sin is just something that we do, there's some that aren't so bad and some that are worse, then it's easy to say that if you, uh, Jesus died for some sins, but he didn't die for other sins. God's omnipotence is greater than any and every sin, and therefore he is able to handle and provide a salvation that covers every single sin. So the issue is how powerful is God and how uh, are versus how powerful is man. Now we're going to stop here partway through four, and then we'll come back uh, in the next lesson, and we will continue our study on eternal security. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this time to study your word, to be reminded that you are the one who positionally sanctifies us and experientially sanctifies us as we walk by means of God the Spirit, God the Holy Spirit. You are the one who provides our salvation and secures it and secures us forever because you completely, totally, finally paid the penalty for all sin so that there's nothing for us to do. And if we don't do anything to gain it, there's nothing we can do to lose it. Father, we pray that you would encourage us with what we've studied in this lesson and that we might be reminded that salvation is all of you and all we do is accept it as a free gift. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.